Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. The best teachers are almost always the best lifelong learners, taking their students with them on a journey to the truth. In order to inspire others, and especially young people, educators need to keep drawing deeply from their favorite wells of knowledge while exploring new ones, too. For the literary scholar, the most celebrated novels and short stories must continue to jump off the page for the ordinary reader. The best-known poems must never cease to evoke emotional response. And the famous plays and films must always speak to the heart of one person's human experience. And for the Christian teacher, there is a primary responsibility above all that. The awesome duty of being a herald of the gospel. Some of the greatest modern Christian witnesses have been at once literary figures in their own right and longtime teachers of the generations beneath them. J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were both Oxford tutors, toiling away with lecturing and marking, while at the same time building worlds that have now captured millions of people's imaginations with the truth of the Christian claims. The men and women who went into teaching careers because of the faithful intellectualism of Tolkien, Lewis, and so many other great Christian educators are now legion. And many of them have initially set foot in the classroom as members of various Protestant ecclesial groups, only to reach the end of their labors teaching the same texts and authors, but now as Roman Catholics. One such figure is the late Thomas Howard, born in 1933 to heroic Protestant missionary parents and received, 52 years later, into full communion with the Catholic Church. Having been captivated as a young man by the great authors of the Western canon at the Evangelical Wheaton College, Howard taught all the greats and wrote about them with measured scholarly insight and vibrant personal faith. En route to Rome via the Canterbury Trail of Anglicanism, Howard became well known on the faculty of Boston's Gordon College, another evangelical institution. Students reached out to him as the man to go and see if one had questions about matters ecclesiastical and aesthetic. These conversations were, no doubt, fodder for Howard's best-known book, Evangelical is Not Enough. 
Upon crossing the Tiber, Howard left Gordon College and settled at St. John's Seminary, offering a wealth of classroom expertise to the formation of those called to be Christ's men at Christ's altars. As an author and critic, Howard published on T.S. Eliot, The Inklings, Liturgy, Apologetics, The Visual Arts, Drama, and many other topics. When he died in October 2020, he was praised by his family, friends, colleagues, former students, and admirers as a rare bird on the religious landscape, the bona fide Christian intellectual. Howard's longtime friend Peter Kreeft said of him, Howard loved and embodied great charm and grace and gentlemanliness, but he also embodied something of another order, great faith, hope, and charity. Howard wrote hundreds of essays for different publications, Protestant, Catholic, and secular. And Keith Call has recently begun the work of collecting them. Call was until recently on staff at Wheaton College, and he has selected some of the best specimens of Howard's shorter work in the new book from Ignatius Press called Pondering Permanent Things, Reflections on Faith, Art, and Culture. Previously, Call co-edited two volumes of writings by the great evangelical literary scholar Clyde Kilby, Howard's own former teacher. To discuss Thomas Howard and his legacy, it is my pleasure to welcome Keith Call to the Ignatius Press Podcast. Keith Call, welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. How are you? Very good, Andrew. Thank you. How are you? I'm great, and I'm really excited to have a chance to talk to you today because we are discussing uh, a very a very interesting collection of writings by a man that I had not heard of, I have to admit, before I had this book in my hands, and I'm very glad that I have heard of him now and that we can discuss him. His name is Thomas Howard, and recently out from Ignatius Press is a collection of his writings called Pondering the Permanent Things, Reflections on Faith, Art, and Culture. And you, Keith, had the distinction of, of compiling the, the writings that went into this volume. So I wonder if we could start with, maybe you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and then um, tell us about Thomas Howard for those who have not heard of him. Certainly. I have uh, worked at Wheaton College for 22 years as the assistant archivist in the archives and special collections at the Billy Graham Center. I've had a variety of jobs, elder care. I worked at Borders Bookstore. I was an editor at a Christian publishing house and learned a bit of compiling there. Um, when I moved to Wheaton in 1994, there was a great uh, influx of evangelicals into liturgical churches. And one of the authors, there were several authors that many of the, the evangelicals were reading, and one of them was Thomas Howard. Um, he was part of the milieu, part of the air at that time. And he is well known in, in these circles, in evangelical circles, because he's the brother of Elizabeth Elliot, famous missionary whose husband, Jim Elliot, was martyred in Ecuador in the late 1950s. And Thomas Howard grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, the Howard family. His father was the editor of the Sunday School Times, which was a very influential newsletter for churches, Protestant churches. It supplied articles about things that were happening, uh, Sunday school lessons and things like that. So Tom Howard went off to school at Wheaton College, got his undergrad degree there, 
went to University of Illinois and earned his graduate degree, went into the army. And then after that, uh, he had grown up in a Bible church, Protestant, very conservative Bible church. And, he'd always, and throughout Wheaton, he'd been interested in liturgical churches and read them, but kind of because it wasn't part of the Wheaton culture back then, he would sort of slip away um, and worship in an Anglican church or in an email once he told me that when the, when the, when his church service was finished, he would run across campus to a presby to a very formal Presbyterian church so he could see one of the elders give the closing prayer. And this elder wore a, a tailed coat and a winged collar the way that men did in the Edwardian era. And Tom told me he was so desperate for formality that, that he would flee from his Plymouth Brethren Church, run off campus so he could hear Carl Armitage give the closing prayer at this church. So that gives you an idea of, of what he was hungry for. So he entered the uh, the Anglican Church in 1962 and remained there until 1985. And he had no intention of converting to Catholicism, but he had been, uh, he said in an interview with Christianity Today that he discovered that the ground had shifted beneath his feet in 1985. And he had been reading John Henry Newman and and uh, all these great Roman Catholic, Augustine and, and Chesterton and all these great Roman Catholic writers and realized that he was indeed Catholic. He was looking over the other side of the fence at Protestantism and Anglicanism. So he quit, he, was, he had been working at, uh, as a professor at Gordon College, which is sort of a, a mainstream evangelical liberal arts college near Boston. Didn't feel he could sign the creedal statement anymore. No one coerced him. They, they loved him there, but he felt based on his own personal integrity that he needed to leave. So he departed, uh, eventually found a position at St. John College and taught English there until he retired. And uh, throughout the course of that, he's written, I've got a stack of his books here. It looks like he's probably uh, uh, two dozen books in the course of things. And you can discern the trajectory, his intellectual and spiritual trajectory by reading these books. Uh, a few of them are, are just straight narratives. Some of them are compilations of essays, a couple of them, and that's what I, I just did. The last compilation came out in 2012 from Ignatius Press. It was called The Night is Far Spent. And because I'd worked in a library and because I kept seeing his essays appearing in different journals, I thought somebody, somebody needs to collect these. And I realized somebody at Ignatius Press needs to get on the ball, do this. And I realized it wasn't happening for whatever reason. So I, uh, I I wrote a letter to Ignatius and then I wrote a letter to his widow, who's a lovely, gracious woman. And she gave me permission to go ahead and collect these. So I went ahead and did that and actually have enough material for three more. Ignatius told me if this sells, then uh, we can move forward with further projects. So I'm hoping that happens. Wow. Yeah. Let's hope everybody picks up a copy of this because I, th I think um, they'll really enjoy it. I mean, as you say, the, the selections come from all over the place. I was really intrigued to see that there were there were pieces in here from Christianity Today and pieces in here from Crisis Magazine. I mean, there were, you know, it really runs runs the gamut. And I think that speaks to um, the interesting aspect of Howard's life, which you've you've gotten into a little bit already. But, you know, his journey from evangelicalism to Anglicanism, to Roman Catholicism. And, you know, many of our listeners, of course, will be will be Catholic. And some of them, I'm sure, will know about Wheaton College. But, you know, for, for me, having grown up evangelical, I, I, I tend to think of Wheaton College as kind of the Notre Dame of evangelicalism. I mean, mm -hmm. in, to kind of make the parallel there for Catholics. It's a very big deal 
um, to go there. And, you know, it, it has had this tradition as being a kind of intellectual evangelical place. Uh, and as you say, it's also increasingly becoming a place where people are, you know, it's almost like uh, a place where people are examining their faith and discovering liturgy and, you know, to some degree moving, moving from one tradition into another. Maybe we could just dwell on this for one more moment. Um, I know that, for example, Clyde Kilby was one of Thomas Howard's teachers, and I, I'm, I am familiar with his work. And um, so I wonder maybe just a little more about what the, what the effect on his kind of formation Wheaton had for, for Thomas Howard. Kilby is hugely influential, not only for Tom Howard, but for uh, there's a whole slew of, of uh, writers and professors out there, uh, John Piper, the reform preacher, he, Mark Knoll, the historian, and, and all of these men sat under Clyde Kilby. He was the chair of the English department. He struck up a friendship. He, he had the great fortune and vision or whatever you want to call it to, uh, after reading a book by C.S. Lewis in the 50s, he contacted Lewis and set up an appointment with him and uh, corresponded with him. And when he met with Lewis, basically he said, when you're dead, may we have your papers. And Lewis said yes, and he took out a black marker on a box and said to Wheaton College, and that's mm -hmm. all. And that began a beautiful relationship. So because of that, because of Kilby, Kilby's foresight and his and his curation, Wheaton College now has uh, probably the best, next to Oxford University, the best collection of C primary CS and secondary CS Lewis documents in the world, along with J.R.R. Tolkien and five other British authors. But Kilby was very sensitive. He knew that there was a, a, a blank spot in Protestantism for Christian artists. There's a suspicion about art in Protestantism that it could lead to idolatry or to, to some fanciful dark road that you don't want to traverse. But Kilby knew that was nonsense. So he wanted to, uh, to stimulate that in these young, young men and women. And he wanted to uh, increase the level of quality of Christian literature. It had re reached, a, it, was, it was much Christian literature during those years was purely evangelistic to lead you to make a decision for Christ, but there wasn't much care to beautiful prose or to, to deeper layers of meaning. So he stimulated his students to delve into that and to create it. So he founded the Wade Center. Um, he passed in 1986. I've actually compiled a collection, two collections of his writings for Paraclete Press. One deals with art and the other deals with the Inklings. And it's, again, it's collections of essays that he wrote, little pieces. And I transcribed a few of the lectures as with this collection, this Tom Howard collection. So uh, I, I would recommend Kilby's writings to any young Christian artist who needs some encouragement, needs some stability, needs uh, uh, need, needs a conversation with a, with a wiser man who will uh, who will steer them uh, to, to more productive and joyful uh, uh, a more productive and joyful career yeah uh, well said I mean I, I would recommend Kilby to our listeners as well and I just I couldn't help but just see in Thomas Howard the you know the influence there the the man who comes comes alive reading T.S. Eliot and Charles Williams and and of course Lewis and Tolkien and so many of our so many of our listeners will have their own kind of Catholic imaginations or Christian imaginations shaped by those same authors so I know that yes. Howard's writings will appeal to them Let's get into that then, uh, especially on this question of art. I, I really, I really enjoyed the essays in the in the volume where Howard is talking about art, and 
I don't know about you, Keith, but I, I am weary of the, the marketing category attached to certain art called Christian. I mean, the Christian marketing category. I find it very tiresome at times. And, you know, I, I get the sense that Thomas Howard might have felt the same way. Uh, he, he's somebody who, who definitely didn't want Christians to seclude themselves into only creating things that have sort of a, a consistent kind of uh, you know, as you said before, kind of um, altar call type message, but actually yeah. probe deep into the the human psyche, into the, you know, the kind of complexity of being a human being in the sight of God and all of that. And he gets into this in this, in this essay in the volume called um, Art and Religion, They Need Not Clash. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he has this wonderful point, and maybe you can take it from here, but he, he says that the artist ought to be haunted, perplexed, astonished, and tormented by life. What do you think he What do you think he meant by that? And what What are kind of the larger lessons that he's pointing us to about art and and religion here? In the first essay in the collection, "Art as Incarnation," he takes that apart a little bit. He says that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the angels don't need art because they hadn't sinned. This pre-fall Adam, I should say, and unfallen angels didn't need art. Because art, art is an index of experience, he says, in time. And after the fall, after time commences, men and created entities, but, but primarily men, humans, need to process that experience. They need to process their joy and their pain. And they need someone more eloquent than they who's written a, a piece of music or sculpted or, uh, or a painting or a play that that you as the mourner or the celebrant can enter into and participate in so art is mere is much more than just packaging some some message like a western telegram message or something like that art art has to do with our very being our very existence it's not a luxury that we indulge in but it's a necessity it aids us in our in our walk toward heaven so he took art very, very seriously. He had no patience with pop art, mm-hmm. with with uh, these praise and worships. He wanted. Uh, uh, there's an essay where he uh, discusses praise and worship songs, and he says, "Well, if you're, he, he's not campaigning against them, but he wants young people, Catholic and Protestants, to know that there's a whole, there's two thousand years worth of delicious hymnody, deep uh, hymnody out there that ought to be uh, that ought to be delved into." And, uh, and he, uh, so he's steering the young people, steering anybody away from shallow, the shallow, uh, advertising oriented art that we tend to see into the higher things. He wants to elevate the, the conversation and mm-hmm. art is the way to do that. I really loved how he did that. I also, I also appreciated how in a, in a later essay in the volume, he, he's not uncritical of the goals of, you know, so-called secular art either, you know, there's a, a, there's one essay where he, he introduces some, some modern filmmakers. I think he mentions like Antonioni and Truffaut, Mm -hmm. maybe in a couple of others, you know, artists I happen to like a lot, but, but nonetheless, I I think his point was strong where he says that we want to be careful on the, on the opposite side, not just to think of art as just a purely cathartic activity, right? Like he wanted to, to focus us on charity, um, that that should, in a sense, come through. And so, you know, we want art that, you know, he, he adduces great artists from the past naturally, like Homer and Virgil, and encourages us to, um, 
to look at poetry in particular as something that should like evoke wonder in us. I don't know if there's more to say about that. This, this, I, I love that, that emphasis on wonder. Yes. Yes. I don't know that I have much more to say. You, you mm-hmm. said that so well. Um, that is another key aspect of Tom Howard's literary output is he was a wonder filled man. And he imparts that to his reader. He stands in awe of the great art, stands in awe of the great starry sky uh, stands in awe of children, stands in awe of, of humans with whom everyday humans he comes across. These are expressions of God's boundless creativity. Yeah. Um, so that you, you are quite correct. His writings really shimmer with the sense of wonder, the sparkling sense of wonder. That's what's so invigorating. And I think that's why he's made so many friends with his writing because he, he ignites that there, there are other authors I love who do the same thing. I think Ray Bradbury did it and Madeline Lingle does mm-hmm. it whose papers are also at Wheaton College. Uh, uh, those are the writers that teach you how to see and how to think. And that is definitely a strong point of Tom's writing. Yeah, you definitely get that in many of these essays. Let's jump around to some of the topics that he discusses in some of the, uh, some of the pieces here. Um, the, the, title of the, the, the title of the book, Pondering the Permanent Things. Permanent Things, I think um, the best place to look in the, in the volume to, to see where he talks about that is in um, the essay that he writes on T.S. Eliot, where he, he uh, also, uh, in a sense, it's an article about T.S. Eliot by way of Russell Kirk. And I wonder if you could say something about that essay. I mean, you know, Eliot is certainly going to be one of those figures who, who looms large in in the the imaginations of of people for whom kind of, um, kind of the whole the whole British thing and the whole kind of mm-hmm. modern intellectual thing that's that is married to faith um, are going to going to have a deep resonance. And Russell Kirk is a figure that I admire a lot. Um, there's definitely a little bit of a Russell Kirk school out there, but he's not a, a, a hugely known person. So I wonder if you could talk about that and kind of the, in that permanent things context that Howard is, is, is in, inviting us into. That permanent things is, is uh, uh, aligned with what we discussed a moment ago. He wants to elevate the conversation. We want to, to discuss the, the, the permanent uh, patterns of human existence, love and death and, and, uh, uh, hatred and uh, uh, we he doesn't want to discuss the ephemeral aspects of the human experience the things that are that, that belong to the moment the shallow things that that we are tending toward as a society so with Elliot he adored Elliot he wrote another book uh, a commentary on four quartets called Dove Descending and you get more of his thoughts about Elliot and it's, and it's a brilliant beautiful book where he he interacts with uh, with that poem and with Eliot's concerns, but that is what he's picking up on Eliot's idea that we need to keep our heads high, keep our heads, and that we've got our feet on the ground because we're still creatures of the earth. But we need to contemplate the great things of the human experience, and again, it's going to be art—not only Eliot's art, but other other art of Western civilization, primarily that's going to pull you into that realm and increase you as a person and you thereby can increase other people because you're pulling into pulling them into finer into a into the more rarefied air of keener thinking and deeper feeling so that's Mm -hmm. what he's getting at with the pop with discussing the permanent things yeah and i appreciated too the art seems to be the way for us to remain hopeful even while we are uh, living amid what Eliot would call lost causes, you know, I mean, it, it can be quite 
quite dispiriting or discouraging sometimes, like going about in a world that seems to have forgotten God. But um, but but good art keeps, as you say, kind of keeps us above, keeps keeps our heads up. Yes. Um, very encouraging stuff there. And he also says in that first essay, he he, he discusses. Personally, speaking for myself, I can't get enough of Christians discuss the intersection between spirituality and art. Uh, they go together like coffee and chocolate. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, in that first essay, he discusses the incarnational aspect of art, mm-hmm. which I think is a very valuable lesson for not just the artist, but anybody who does anything throughout the day. You've got a concept up here, and then you put flesh on it somehow, whether it's a sculpture, or a painting, or a play, or or a good meal or mowing the lawn, or getting your apartment in order. That all involves vision here initially. It's it's uh, an abstraction that achieves solidity because you make a decision to give form to it. And I think that is such a valuable message for people. We often hear, oh, I'm not artistic. I can't, I couldn't draw a stick figure and things like that. But you are. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, if the Holy Spirit is living through you, you're your life is a sphere. It's a, it's a theater for ministry, for for making something, for making somebody happy, for saying something. You 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 create that vision of service in your head, and then you make it happen. So that's very very incarnational. Mm-hmm. That's what one of Tom Howard's friends, Leanne Payne, another Wheaton uh, person associated with Wheaton College, calls incarnational reality. And although Tom does not use that phrase in the book, he he. That's what he's explaining, particularly with that first essay. And that that theme runs throughout all of his writings as well. Yeah, I got that sense of the, this, um, that this is a major thing that he appreciates about J.R.R. Tolkien as well, is taking, is taking you know, uh, the, this incredible imaginative thing and giving life to it, in a sense, incarnating it. Um, yes. And and the other thing, and maybe you could speak to this briefly, is it seems like he was kind of, Howard was kind of on the vanguard of people who were beginning to recognize Tolkien in, I don't know, maybe the 70s and 80s as a great literary figure, not just a kind of popular, you know, author of fantasy or a kind of fuddy-duddy academic who happened to write these children's stories, but like one of the great authors in modern English. Mm-hmm. Would you say that that's, that's fair that Howard thought of that way? I would say that's very fair. I think he saw a sort of Catholic pilgrim's progress in the Lord of the Rings. He saw uh, uh, leaving the, uh, we've got the hobbits leaving the comforts of their home and venturing out into these terrible dangers and performing an act of heroism that puts, uh, puts hair on their chest, so to speak, and develops them. And they're dealing with these great cosmic realities and that is the that is the uh, the desired trajectory for a spiritual person to to move through all of those stages and all of those steps. And yes, he saw that again. He'd grown. He he hadn't. I don't think seen anything quite like that in the evangelicalism in which he grew up. He saw these sort of evangelistic tracks posing as novels and things like that, and hadn't seen anything quite so exotic and and mind blowing as the Lord of the Rings and Narnia. Also, so yeah, he he saw right away the value of those of, of that work in particular. Yeah, and maybe that's a good segue to to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is there are eight little essays in the volume about drama, and it seems to me that in those you know those little those little pieces, he is 
exploring further that that very idea that you just mentioned about kind of the this kind of shape and pattern that sort of the you know the understanding of oneself as you know as a creature on a journey mm-hmm. um you know he he's got this great line that I, that i i um I, I copied down here that I'll read out maybe as a, a springboard to what we what we can talk about next. But he says, in the fall of a Hamlet, a Lear, an Othello, or a Macbeth, we see gigantic falls. There is no fall for modern man, since what is wrong with us is not, on our view, our fault. Shakespeare would quarrel with us. So I, I'm, I'm reading that as, you know, as, as to say he's not just being a sort of grouch about modernity, although there's maybe a little bit of that there. But what he's saying is, look, I mean, we in kind of reading the classic dramas, um, we we can remember what a human being is uh, in a way that yeah. I think kind of mo- the modern way of looking at what it means to be a human being, namely, you know, not as really somebody who's accountable to anything and therefore not really even in need of redemption. Um, in a sense, like that ruins the story, right? I mean, you don't want to read a story where there isn't redemption in it, I guess. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts about some of these these reflections on drama that he has? No, I would agree with you. And he sees those people, are they're, they're stand-ins, Hamlet or David Copperfield or whomever. Those are stand-ins for us. We can inject ourselves or project into those stories with very little difficulty. And there are reper- repercussions to their actions. There's interactions with other people. There's successful relationships and there's failed relationships. And there's a great climax to, where, to which that story is moving. Um, and I think maybe his view of drama also deepened his view of, uh, of the communion table, of the mass. You're entering into sort of a three, if it's a three, if you're living three-dimensionally or living vicariously through these characters and sort of entering three-dimensionally into their experience, then you're doing the same thing when you approach the table with the bread and the wine. So it all, it's all, it all sort of uh, hung together for him in what he called the seamless fabric, which was actually the initial title I gave this to the book. He saw these things as ideally when uh, an unfallen universe is a seamless fabric and there are seams in it now. But our objectives as Christian people is to sort of get back to living inside that seamless fabric. Yeah, I, I like how there there's clearly this connection between the the liturgy and and drama, and the the two kind of play back and forth. You know, like the liturgy yes. when you experience a liturgy, for example, you know, a beautiful high mass or something like that. You sort of you are in you know inevitably caught up in the drama. Like you understand yourself to be you know, a, a real participant, even if it's, you know, a, a different kind of participation maybe than, than Howard would have experienced before he became Catholic. Um, but, but likewise, when you, when you go to a play, when you, when you watch a Shakespeare play, you're not just watching, it isn't just a passive experience. Um, so I don't know, I, for one, as a, as a great appreciator of liturgy and as a great appreciator of literature and drama that, that resonated with me very much. I don't know if you have any further thoughts about that one. Yeah, I, I, that was that was really strong stuff. I recommend uh, everyone check out those. Um, let's talk. Uh, let's let's back up maybe a little bit and think some more about Howard's uh, Howard's evangelical past and his kind of journey ultimately into the Catholic Church. I was struck that there are two essays in the volume where he he really expresses appreciation for 
two very, well, one extremely well-known evangelical leader and one maybe somewhat less well-known, but still pretty well-known evangelical leader. And those, those two men are Billy Graham and John Stott. Mm-hmm. Um, now, let's start with Billy Graham. What, even, even as a Catholic, what do, you, what do you think Howard thought about Billy Graham and kind of what, what were kind of the, what were the good things for even, even for, you know, high churchmen, Catholics, for people with a sacramental imagination to take away from uh, a figure like Billy Graham? He respected Billy Graham. And I think, I think he saw, if I read, read that essay correctly, Billy Graham's a sort of corrective um, he would, Tom would acknowledge that, that he, he saw flaws in the Catholic church occasionally throughout the centuries. It would swing too far into maybe certain cultic practices or something like that. And he, he holds up Billy Graham and several other Stokely Carmichael and other figures from popular culture as sort of correctives. You don't have to get behind what they're saying completely, but you have to listen to the fact that they're there. They provide a sort of gravitational pull. You have to listen to what they're saying and process whether should I be thinking like this? Should I be incorporating this into my worldview or not because of their presence? So he saw Billy Graham as sort of that Billy Graham was a, was a positive president talked about Jesus. Obviously he wasn't Roman Catholic. Um, but uh, I, I think he saw him as a, as, as just that somebody who might provide a bit of a corrective. If he, if Catholicism was getting away from Jesus at any point, there's Billy out there and you have to contend with his presence and maybe we need to move a little more in that direction and and, uh, and uh, recover some of that message, some of that vision. Yeah, he mentions Fulton Sheen in that essay as well, who, you know, certainly was not, uh, didn't have the same, the same kind of verve, I guess, as Billy Graham, but was an extremely charismatic um, yeah. preacher and teacher, I mean, who commanded a very large audience. I mean, I know, for example, I, I say this all the time, listeners of the podcast might remember my saying this in a previous conversation, but my four po- Protestant grandparents loved Fulton Sheen. I mean, oh, yeah. they, loved, they loved Billy Graham too, loved Billy Graham, but they, they loved Fulton Sheen. They, they tuned in every week when he was on television. And, you know, I, I appreciate Howard. You know, I, I myself, as a as a Catholic convert, as it, as it were, someone who's come into full communion with the Catholic Church, there are temptations from from time to time to throw the throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were, and just kind of pronounce your past dead. Um, but Howard seems reluctant to do that, and I, I it was refreshing for me. It, it was helpful to me to, in a sense, like kind of not for him not only to be kind of gentle with his own past. I mean, obviously he was still, he still had so many people in his life who were very close to him, who were not, not Catholic, but also to understand that there are gifts and and the Catholic church teaches this very clearly that there are gifts that are possessed by groups and individuals who are outside of full communion with the Catholic church. And those are gifts to be shared with the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. And I like that he said that about, he said that about Graham. I I do as well. I very much respect the fact that he does not trash his Protestant heritage at all he has great respect for his father for his plymouth brethren background um he um full disclosure for your audience i'm not catholic but i feel a lot of his messages exportable to other groups his insistence upon discussing the finer things um, but also exportable is his uh iranic spirit he's not interested in hurting you know i it's not this i'm catholic now and now 
I'm, I'm the, the Protestantism, that's an unfortunate phase in my life. He sees it as a necessary phase. It was foundational. It taught him to love the scriptures. And he uh, expands upon that in this 1985 essay with Christianity Today. He says, I'm still a fundamentalist. And uh, personally, my next book, I'm working on a collection of writings by Dr. Bob Jones, Jr., hmm. who was also, an, uh, uh, he was the president of Bob Jones University. He was an actor. He was a Shakespearean actor. He had all Shakespeare memorized. Bob Jones has the best collection of Renaissance art in the Western Hemisphere. He was a poet. He was a novelist. If you look at Bob Jones, and they are not a Catholic school at no, all no. down there. But if you were to put uh, Bob Jones Jr. and Tom Howard in a room together, and if, I guess as long as they stayed away from too much religion, they would have discussed exactly the same topics. Mm -hmm. So where I'm coming from with all that, I, I sort of have absorbed his uh, Catholicity with a small c. I want to see uh, the best things of all. I want to see all Christians of all denominations cross-pollinating mm -hmm. and enjoying the things of, of other groups. In my apartment here, I've got stacks of books by Lutherans and Assemblies of God and Orthodox. And this is a great delight of my life to sort of squeeze out the, the precious juices from all those fruits, so to speak. So reading Tom Howard, although he was decidedly Catholic, you also get a vision for uh, the good things of other groups and an appreciation for it. And I, I too very much appreciate that. If, if he were just going to be, uh, if his books were just in his essays were just screeds against Protestantism and what he used to be, wouldn't be interested in him at all. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I don't think, I don't think very many people would be, I, uh, you know, his journey, as we touched on earlier, from evangelicalism to the Roman Catholic church included a, a lengthy stay in Anglicanism and um, I was, you know, I was interested in the essay that he wrote about John Stott, who, um, if listeners don't know about him, he was a great evangelical figure in the Church of England. And, you know, he, John Stott, I know from my own experience, but I, I, I got this very strongly from Thomas Howard. The fact that John Stott was an Anglican who, who had kind of, but who nonetheless had kind of evangelical bona fides, um, allayed the fears of a lot of families whose, whose children um, left kind of certain evangelical traditions and made their way into Anglicanism. Now, going all the way into the Roman Catholic Church, trust me, from my own experience, is, is a whole different matter. Um, but John Stott is a really interesting figure, and I think one who, who, who's clearly important in Howard's development, not only his faith development, but kind of his literary development too, because you know, Stop, or, um, Howard was so, uh, was so, um, he, he loved all of these English, these English figures, you know, people like C.S. Lewis, for example. And John Stott was kind of a figure that connected that, you know, that tradition um, to what, you know, I mean, Stott died not that long ago, but uh, right. kind of, kind of brought it up to uh, almost, to, almost to the present day. So maybe just a uh, I've rambled on enough, I suppose, maybe about John Stott. But if you have anything further to add about Howard's view of, of Stott, because that, that's an interesting kind of companion essay to the one on Billy Graham. It is. And you're you're right about Stott. Stott was sort of a bridge figure. I think in, in the eyes of mainstream evangelicals, he's more perceived as a mainstream evangelical of some kind. I don't think his... Anglicanism is given very much consideration. When you see pictures of him, he's not wearing the robes. He's wearing a suit. It's a mainstream evangelical publisher, InterVarsity Press, and, and that publishes 
for a long time, primarily published his books. But Tom knew that he was Anglican, and I think uh, Stott exhibited some of the best qualities and probably made it easier, even if subconsciously made it easier for Tom to start making his decisions, that he would start moving in that direction. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder if, although we've, we've, uh, I think we've, we've, uh, walked across a, a nice, even, uh, kind of ecumenical bridge to each other here. And I think that Howard is a figure who, who re- really represents something like that. He nonetheless was a figure that evangelicals would, or, and Anglicans probably, uh, you know, Protestants of different varieties would come and see when they were going through their own, their own struggles about whether they were called sure. to come into full communion with the Catholic church. And he has, um, he has, there are three essays that you've, that you've included in the collection here where he talks about evangelicalism a bit. And I know that he was, I, I guess, I, I guess he coined this, this term that um, evangelical, or I think he said evangelicalism is not enough, I think was a, a, something like that was a, was a phrase that he was known Correct. to, known to utter. So Books, oh, he's yeah. got a book called that, right? Yeah. yeah. So, what did he mean by that? What, and what, you know, what, what kind of things would he say to people who came to him or who or who corresponded with him about whether they should become Catholic? He felt that Protestantism was uh, maybe four or five steps toward the objective. Catholicism was the full ten steps toward the objective. It wasn't the faith in its fullest sense. You couldn't appreciate the Christian cosmology in its most complete sense, unless you converted to Catholicism. So he was, I I suppose, he was a gentle campaigner for the Roman Catholic Church. And indeed, many, as I said, many evangelicals have have crossed the Tiber, and they are uh, Catholics now as a result of reading these books. But um, he he felt that uh, the Protestantism was so disjointed, shattered, it's broken up into pieces, and whereas that that may delight me in a sense, because I like sorting through the pieces and finding the treasures, to him it wasn't satisfying. So he wanted the completion. Again, he wanted the seamless fabric of the Roman Catholic Church itself. So for confused evangelicals, he would he would gently draw them in mm-hmm. to convert. Yeah, I'm interested to hear that he. Uh, I, I'm not surprised in the least, but also very interested to hear that that he was reading Newman. Um, you know, Newman Newman quipped about about Protestantism, that the, the only unifying principle of Protestantism is not Roman Catholic. So in a sense, like, you know, um, which is uh, to your point about kind of just how, you know, how to, I, and I get it to some people, that's kind of an attraction of not being Catholic is that they're kind of all these different, mm-hmm. all these different things out there. But, you know, I, I understand because I've felt it myself, what, what Howard was getting at kind of um, the wanting that, that, that seamless garment, that, that unified kind of the unifying principle. Um, and, and now maybe that's an, an interesting segue to, you know, we, we haven't gotten too deep into Howard's biography, but his wife did not become Catholic when he did. Is that correct? Not right away. She eventually did. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, it's in one of the, one of the essays or, or, or somewhere where he, he basically wasn't anxious about that at all, which was, I think, a, a real encouragement for families who are in different phases of discernment about their mm-hmm. about their place in the church. Um, there can be real anxiety, uh, for example, in the life of a of a couple when one feels called to be Catholic and the other doesn't. And um, you know, I think Howard's example, uh, we could say, you know, is is encouraging in the sense to kind of just trust in God's providence on those questions. Yeah, and I don't. There doesn't seem to have been any hysteria at all 
he sort of himself, he sort of realized one day that he was Catholic and then Loveless, his widow came along a little bit later. And then his sister, Elizabeth Elliot said, I saw it coming a long time ago. It doesn't bother me a bit. And then his brother, Tom or David Howard, who was an expert in missions, evangelical mission. He said, I don't like it. Uh, I have grave reservations about certain aspects of Roman Catholic theology, but we're still friends. We're still brothers. It didn't cause any kind of rift. So yeah, it's probably a lot of, even, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of evangelical authors wrote into Christianity today when that interview was published, uh, griping about it. But um, as you say, it, it, it's, it's, it's a peaceful thing and it should give people hope. We're all on, on uh, I hate to use evangelical cliches, but we are, on a journey, you know, and you, sure. you pick up pieces and you, you, we, we move forward as best we can with the teachers that God has provided. And some, some of those teachers disagree. And that's part of the, again, for me, that's part of the pleasure is sorting through this mm-hmm. and trying to, uh, t- trying to uh, uh, latch on to a coherent vision. Yeah. One, one more figure that, that pops up at the end of the book, it, it really is. It's interesting how Howard's, Howard's life, for, for those who don't come from the evangelical world, um, it, it might not resonate quite as deeply, but I, but I, hope it, I hope it will when people pick up the book that Howard was a person whose life was so, uh, you know, was so touched by and intertwined by some of these major figures from the evangelical world in America um, prior to his, you know, prior to becoming Roman Catholic. And I was really interested at the end of the book, there is a lengthy interview with Frank Schaefer. Now, um, some listeners may may know that Frank Schaefer is the son of Francis Schaefer, who was a very well-known um, evangelical uh, who started this community in Switzerland called Labrie. Um, members of my own family actually went to Labrie and spent time there. And um, so Francis Schaefer, I know just in my in my evangelical home, was a kind of a major name. That was he was definitely somebody that was had a very interesting take on kind of the faith and the culture and that kind of thing. Well, anyway. Francis Schaefer's son, Frank, ended up becoming Eastern Orthodox, and now I think is maybe kind of an agnostic or something. I'm not Mm -hmm. quite sure. But there's a really fascinating interview between Frank Schaefer and Thomas Howard at the the end of the collection. Um, I have various thoughts about that, but Keith, let me just throw it back to you. And and what, you know, tell us what's going on in that that conversation. Well, Frankie, Frank or Frankie used to be called Frankie uh, uh, early on after he left Switzerland was the darling of evangelicalism. He wrote a couple of books for Crossway Books, which is up the street for me. Uh, one, is, one of the books is called Addicted to Mediocrity, and they're pretty good books. But as the world started to open up to Frankie, uh, and he moved out of the evangelical uh, evangelical circles in which he was running, he realized it in his mind that issues of abortion and voting rights and all these kinds of things were much more complicated than he'd realized. So he, uh, he did move into uh, orthodoxy. And now, as you say, he's in kind of, I I think, uh, uh, somewhere, some kind of agnostic expression of faith right now. Um, But he moved in close to uh, in the same neighbor, not too far from Tom Howard, and they struck up a friendship and talked. And in this essay, they discuss liturgical issues, some of the weaknesses, some of the concerns that are, uh, that have arisen some of the, uh, the, the breakages and that have arisen in evangelicalism. So it's two very intelligent men, uh, bantering back and forth about these issues. And, uh, 
uh, as you say, it's quite fascinating, but I would be curious to hear your thoughts. Well, I mean, I, uh, well, I, one of the things that I, I thought was really interesting about the interview is uh, Frank basically asks uh, uh, Howard, like, why, why Roman Catholic rather than Eastern Orthodox? And he's very matter. I, I, I really like his answer because, I mean, I know from lots of conversations with people kind of trying to discern, should I become Roman Catholic? Should, what about Eastern Orthodox? That that can be a really difficult question. And, um, and I, I like, you know, Howard's answer is basically like, I, you know, yeah, maybe if I'd been exposed to different people, different teachers, like that's the direction I would have gone. But I'm a Western man. You know, I feel comfortable kind of as a Western Catholic. And they then get into the liturgical thing where, you know, you, you mentioned that they talk about sort of, in a sense, kind of the weaknesses of, of Protestant worship. But Howard is also very matter of fact about the weaknesses of Roman Catholic worship, yeah. which I, I, think, I, I think is very important. And, and it comes through in a way that I think, um, it, again, just kind of highlights his sort of honesty and his kind of open, open mindedness. You know, he, he's got this thing where he says when he was an Anglican, he used to enthusiastically be able to say to people, hey, come along to our service because it's so beautiful. You're going to love it, you know. Right. And he kind of says as a Roman Catholic, he's a little bit less inclined to do that, you know, because mm-hmm. it might be felt banners and it might be, you know, kind of bad music. It might, you know, whatever. But he says it doesn't matter. And he, there's a great quote before I throw it back to you. I'm sorry. I'm getting a little bit verbose. Oh. But he says, the Roman Catholic Church is very much like the Lord. There is no form of comeliness. When you see it, there is no beauty that you should desire it, which is really fascinating. You know, the beauty is somehow kind of in the truth itself rather than kind of just on on the surface. So I love, I really love that interview, I have to say. So I don't know, I'll throw it back to you. Well, in fact, I'll throw it right back to you. Does that resonate with your experience as well as a convert? It does. It does, Keith. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, there are plenty of great places where you can experience really beautiful liturgy in the Roman Catholic church. Absolutely. Um, and you know, I'm blessed that, that I get to experience that more often than not, but you know, I, there are, it's not, it's not, it's not a uniformed experience by any means. And the, the critiques, especially from an Eastern Orthodox Christian are, I think, understandable and well-founded that, um, you, uh, in a sense, you have to put up with a lot, uh, but, you know, as one of my mentors said to me before I came into the Catholic Church about a whole number of things, he said, the Catholic Church is perfectly awful, but it's the real deal. So um, <laughs> yeah, that does extend to liturgy sometimes. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciated yeah, I like that interview that. very much. I like that. Well, Keith, I am so grateful for the time that you've been able to spend with us today on the Ignatius Press podcast. Thank you, Andrew. I hope everybody will go and get a a copy of this book. The book is Pondering the Permanent Things, Reflections on Faith, Art, and Culture by Thomas Howard, compiled by my guest today, Keith Call. Keith, thank you so much again for taking the time to join me today on the Ignatius Press Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. God bless. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com. Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprin. God bless.